Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we have the Nadi Eshta. Nadi Eshta. Taran Chesky. Yay. <laughs> that wasn't half bad. And actually, you got off easy because when I was born, my last name was Zawatsky Krasnopolsky. So that was even longer. So this is already the, the easy version. <laughs> so for now, I'm going to call you Nadia. That's cool. Of course it is. Give, give us a bit of background. First of all, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you on, wonderful to connect. So just give us a background. Who are you? What are you doing? Where are you from? Well, you start with the easy questions, right? The who are you question. Um, let me start with the, the background. So I am based in Berlin, Germany. Uh, have been born to a German mom and a Russian Polish dad, uh, hence the even more complicated last name in the past. Uh, I'm married to a Pole now, so the slightly less complicated Eastern European that I have now. And uh, I yeah, was born and raised in Germany, uh, but have been living abroad uh, at different points in my life in the US and in England. And yeah, so I've been about. And the who I am, you know, I knew from watching some of your previous interviews, obviously, that you asked this question in the beginning. And I thought, yeah, how do, how do you even answer that right? in, in any way that is sort of meaningful? Um, and I thought the best we can probably do, I can do sort of this approximation, right? Giving some data points around this. So I'm 40 years, uh, 48 years old, sorry, and going through perimenopause, which is a, a bitch, frankly, but, you know, something that we women have to deal with and nobody told us about it. Mm -hmm. um, I am bisexual, married to my wife, Olga. We've been together for 20 years, known each other since we were 16, so quite a long time. Um, I run a coaching business. I've been a coach for 20 years now. Uh, I'm a psychologist by training and then went straight to coaching after I got my master's degree, written a book about the, the whole experience and sort of all the models and ideas that I felt are most helpful or have been most helpful in my own transformation and, and, and supporting my clients. So that's the book right behind me, The Conscious You, Becoming the Hero of Your Own Story. Um, and these days with my coaching company, we produce and deliver so-called blended learning programs for coaching. They're all focused on creating scalable programs for inner work and, and mainly in organization mm -hmm. and organizations. And some of our programs are open, uh, so open to the public, but mainly we deliver them in organizations. And I love to draw. I've, I've done 85 illustrations for my book. So that has been one of the reasons why it took me so long to finish my book. We chatted about that before. Yeah. And uh, I love to cook. I, uh, I, I really, really love to host people. So to uh, be of service in that way and make people happy through cooking is one of my passions. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, and we have Olga, my wife and I have a very big family of choice, as we call them, because we don't have kids by by our own. So uh, we have a lot of very close friends that we consider family and their children are sort of part of our family as well. And yeah, so that's uh, some data points around the question of who am I? How, how close are you to your true self? Hmm, that's a nice question. I think pretty close. I I would say that, you know, even with the very start of my career, when I finished my degree in psychology, I realized because I've been um, raised by two, well, actually three parents, because my my mom's second husband sort of raised me from when I was 11 years old. And before then, obviously, my biological dad. But all of those three adults, my mom and my second dad and my biological dad, they were all self-employed their entire lives. And my mom and her second husband were artists. So I grew up in, in a culture that was very much focused on autonomy and, and sort of freedom of choice. So I believe that one of the decisions that I might qu made quite early on is instead of going for security and, you know, sort of taking a proper job and going through the career stages, I became self-employed right after my master's, which, you know, honestly, was probably one of the dumbest things anybody can do without a network and, you know, no connections, nobody knows you, but I somehow I, within my soul without knowing that clearly at that time, um, freedom was always trumping security, right? So, and, and I think on this path of expressing myself and, and creating a life in which I could essentially do what I loved, that has led me uh, in a straight, in a straight path, if, if you want closer and closer to my essence and, and, and the person who I think I really am. Am I fully there yet? No, but I think as far as I can tell, I'm not doing so bad. Mm -hmm. What is, what does your fire in the belly look like? What does my fire in the belly look like? My fire in the belly. Um, my fire in the belly has a lot to do with what I do for a living and with my family's history. So I mentioned earlier that I'm half German and then a quarter Russian, quarter Polish. So my, my family's history is very typical to what you would see in, in a lot of Europe, which means during World War II, this strange mix of um, timelines occurred, right? That were meeting at, at very unlikely points. So looking back at my family story, my mom's side of the family, they weren't outspoken Nazis during the Third Reich, but they were also not in the resistance, right? I would say they were part of the, the big majority of Germans who were closing their eyes to what was happening and sort of just hoping it wasn't true and it wasn't as bad as uh, they were suspecting. Mm -hmm. And the Russian-Polish side of my family at the same time experienced a lot of, of very heavy trauma. So my grandmother, for example, she was the Polish one. Uh, she was taken by the Germans when they had occupied Warsaw. They um, abducted, uh, I guess you could say, a, a number of people. She was thrown into a work camp. And then out of that work camp, um, some of the women were recruited to be live in um, well, with my words, I would probably say live in prostitutes for German officers. So, you know, I recently had a conversation with my father about this and he said, 
my grandmother um, then had this relationship with a German officer. And I looked at him like, I don't think that's necessarily what you can call it, right? I don't know how much free choice was in this relationship. But at any rate, that's where she spent the war and she ended up having a child by him. While at the same time, my Russian grandfather was in France. Uh, he worked as a, a journalist in Paris. And when the Germans occupied Paris, after a few years, they began to be more and more interested in his connections because he was so deeply interwoven with the, uh, the Eastern European Russian community that at some point they felt that he might actually be an asset. And after you know asking more politely a couple of times and him declining, they ended up throwing him into a concentration camp and did sort of all the, you know, things that they did in concentration camps, like pull his toenails and pull his teeth and, and until he caved in and agreed to work uh, as an informant for the, the Nazis for the last uh, year of the war. Um, and then through, you know, some freak accident, he ended up meeting my grandmother in Berlin as he was doing some work for the Germans. And they met at a at a ball that was given for the Eastern European community. And they well, at least so the story goes, they fell in love. Um, at that point, it was already noticeable that the, the war might not be going as the German had predicted, the Germans had predicted. And um, they also knew that they couldn't go home to their respective home countries because they would have both been executed for being collaborators, basically. So they had agreed to meet in the Western sector. So they could already tell where the Americans were going to occupy if uh, Germany lost the war mm -hmm. and ended up through, you know, I mean, the resilience of people during these times, honestly, I don't know how they did it, but they ended up meeting in the Red Cross camp in Wiesbaden, which is uh, near Frankfurt in Germany, and then ended up being stuck in, in Germany. And my dad and his uh, other two sisters grew up in extreme poverty, right? And, and sort of scarred by two parents that were not dealing with their trauma in any conscious fashion. So the result of which was a lot of violence in the family and a lot of substance abuse, mainly alcohol. And so for me, I would say I spent the better part of 20 years uh, trying to come to terms with the trauma on the one side of my family and sort of the, the silence and the, um, you know, the, the, the unacknowledged guilt and shame on the other side of the family and then the parents that came out of those dynamics and what, you know, whatever dynamic also unfolded between my parents as a result of all that trauma that wasn't addressed and that hadn't been processed. And so it took me a long time to, to get to a point where I really even wanted to be alive fully. And therefore, and that is a very long introduction into my fire in the belly, mm. Um, because what what I came to at quite an early point was realizing if if people are not in connection with themselves, right, if they can't feel themselves, if there is no self-compassion, then there cannot be any compassion with another human being, not 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 really. And people who are so disconnected from themselves and others are capable of the most atrocious things. And what people, have done to each other over the course of history is just mind boggling. Mm -hmm. And so I believe the only way to prevent that from happening is to make people more conscious, to, to help people feel and to help people develop tools for uh, self-reflection, understanding themselves, um, being able to articulate that, communicate with other people, 
um, yeah, to have compassion for what it means to be a human being. Mm. So that is my fire in the belly. That's what I do for a living. And, and I actually also think that's what I do in my personal life as well, is I love to be connected to people. And I love that moment when they fall in love with themselves and to witness that and be part of that process is, yeah, that's really the essence of my fire in the belly. Is that the, the modus operandi is to, is to actually help people to connect to themselves? Is that the, is that the intention? Yeah, I, I would say in many ways it is. It's, um, it's to help people come not just to come to terms with, but to fall in love with their humanity. Right. And, and, and of course with falling in love with our humanity to me also means falling in love with our shortcomings, falling in love with our shadows, falling in love with the things and all the sides and areas where we aren't perfect and not to, to continue hiding that because that creates rupture that creates disconnect from ourselves. And then ultimately also in our relationships so I, you know, I do believe that if we can help people to be in better contact with themselves and, you know, and in some ways I would say that's part of the work that I see you doing as well, right. Is to, to allow people to tell their story brings them in deeper contact with, with themselves. And it, it's, it's a healing process. Mm. I'm curious. I mean, there's so much history there, I suppose, with your family and that. And well, first of all, do, do you think everyone is born with fire in their belly? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, honestly, I, I don't think there is a child on this planet that isn't born with uh, with some kind of fire. But I think we have, um, you know, situations for a lot of children worldwide where that fire is extinguished rather quickly, or at least it's it's dampened immensely by the experiences we make, by you know, the process of socialization, the process of becoming more like everybody else, because, you know, true uniqueness, really expressing who you are, being different, um, that is not something that socially is valued very much yet. And, and therefore, I think that fire in the belly question, of course, we have that fire, but how do you reignite that flame, right? I think for some people it's very noticeable and they they just know they have it and others are really surprised when they discover that they actually have it. But everybody has it. Mm. I, I don't know what you think about it. You've interviewed more people than I have. But. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's one right answer. I mean, I suppose my, my, my core belief is that if you have a breath in your lungs and a beat in your heart, that you have a fire in your belly. Um, <laughs> It's the question is, what do you do with it and how big the flame is and how, you know, and that's, that's no different to anything, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole point of, you know, what you do and, and, you know, it's how you, you get people to be the best version. Why do some people get up and do amazing things and why do other people get up and don't, you know, and they, they, yeah. but, but, you know, one, one thing, maybe one point of distinction, because, um, I know that sometimes you know, when you talk about fire in the belly, what, what that elicits for me is that whole question around purpose and, and purpose is, um, you know, obviously this big thing in, in, in the world of coaching, everybody wants to find their purpose now. And it's like, if you don't have your purpose clear, then what are you doing here anyway? And, and I know that for some people that can feel really, um, scary, like, because they may not be able to articulate that purpose piece. And I think part of the reason why it's so hard to maybe name what is my fire in the belly or what is my purpose 
is that we think it too big. I, you know, I don't believe that to have fire in the belly means you have to set out to change the world. I don't think that it is necessarily connected to this giant mission. And, you know, the, the other day I was having this conversation with my best friend and business partner. Her name is Michelle. And she, um, you know, she says, I, I really identify with the values that we have in our company, Conscious You. But she said, if I'm really honest, the thing that I want to do all day long is sit around and draw and, you know, write children's stories and write labels for my plant pots and doodle in my notebook. Like that makes me the happiest. And I, and I actually believe that's her fire in the belly. Will that change the planet? I don't know, but actually it might just, because I, I would say ultimately for me, having a connection to the fire in your belly just means you do what you love. And if you do what you love, then there is no way you're not going to inspire people along the way and help them to, to become more of themselves as well. And whether that means you're doodling in your notebook and people find that amazing and stimulating, or you interview people across the globe, or you coach people, I don't know, or you, you know, you've battled climate change. It could be anything. It's, it's that, and I'm always fascinated by this. There's an expression, you know, your voids are your values, which I just, every time I think about it, it just, it, you know, well, what do you think of that? I mean, is are your void your values? Should they be? When you say voids, can, can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, so I mean, uh, I don't know, you take an example of somebody who maybe grew up with a lack of money in their homes. There was, for whatever reason, or lack of a father figure or lack of um, just stability, right? And so then fast forward 15, 20, 30, 50 years, and that's exactly what they, you know, they, they are driven to never feel the lack of money. So everything they do is to get, say, as money is the example, say, is to make sure that they never feel a lack of money in their life. So, you know, but ultimately then when they actually achieve that, then they don't know what to do with it. So they either self-sabotage or they, you know, they sort of go ahead and go away and scratch your, scratch your head and wonder what, what do we do now? They're a bit lost. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that, that, thank you for the explanation. Um, I would probably phrase it a little differently. I would say, in my experience, your values are always connected to your story, mm -hmm. right? So they're always connected to your past and they do have a lot to do with your childhood. However, the takeaways you can you can draw from that story can be very different. So, you know, as to your example with money, somebody um, who grew up with very little money can make, come to the conclusion that the only way to ever be safe in the world um, is to have money. But they could also likewise come to the conclusion that everybody with money is actually evil and therefore uh, create a subconscious pattern of, of pushing money away. Right. So, so I think the same experience can come to very or result in very different outcomes and, and, and different values. So yes, there's a connection, but is it always sort of the straight arrow from, you know, here was a lack that I experienced and this is now a value. I, I don't know if it's always that straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's, it's hard to know. I suppose. I mean, and the bigger question is, you know, how, how often are we being pure and direct in our intentions? You know, how much of it is down to this is what I want, or is this a, a version of the ego at play? But that's yeah. <laughs> it's hard to know, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
talk to us about your book. I'm very conscious. So, I mean, again, so it's conscious you become the hero of your own story. What's it about and what was your intention? So the book actually came about in, in what I thought was sort of peculiar way because people had asked me if I, you know, maybe after 15 years of coaching, if I, you know, it wasn't time to, to perhaps write a book and, you know, build a brand and, you know, all of these great ideas that people have for how you uh, create fame and influence. And I always thought, I, I don't know if I need to put another book in the world because honestly, everything that I believe is, is sort of true and valuable has already been said by somebody else and probably a more elaborate and eloquent way than, than I possibly could. So I thought, what's the point? But then what I noticed happening is clients would ask me for point us to, if we use a certain modality in coaching, if I explained a certain model to them and they felt it was helpful and they said, well, you know, is there a book about it? Or, you know, can you point me to a direction, some source where I can read more? Mm. But then of course, as uh, you know, most books are structured, you usually have an author who then spends 400 pages explaining one idea. And most clients of mine don't have the attention span and or time to get that deeply into the subject matter. So what I started doing was writing these, if you want summaries through my specific lens of certain modalities and, and models and ideas that I had picked up from other people. And then I began to string them together like pearls on the string and just said, okay, this is how that model fits with this idea. And, you know, I was trying to make sense in a way or create a narrative out of the work that we had done. Mm. And so then eventually those little snippets of information, those summaries that I created turned into, into a book because then I realized actually maybe I do have a story to tell. Mm. And what I, you know, that's the feedback also I've gotten on the book is I have every chapter is a new model or a new modality, a new idea, um, a new theory, a new philosophy. So, and, and most of them, uh, if not all of them are not mine originally. So I try to extract in the most clear way possible, what is the essence of that person's thinking. And then at the end of the chapter, there's a list of resources. So if you do want to go deeper in, into any of these models or, or modalities, then you can obviously do that. But for, for a lot of people, it's, it's enough, right? To have sort of 23, five pages um, on a certain topic gives them enough to work with. And then I created a workbook. So people who want to undergo a self-coaching process, yeah, they can download a free workbook and, and really work through these chapters and people who just like to read it and, and have it work in, in themselves, they can just read the book. Um, yeah. So it's a bit of a, a treasure, a treasure chest of different ideas and, and approaches. And, you know, I started the book with a, with a quote that I really love, which is by a statistician. And he said, all models are wrong and some of them are useful. And I think that's really, really true for everything that comes out of uh, psychology and philosophy and, and a lot of the sciences as well, where you have great, very useful ideas, potentially, if they mean something to you. Hmm. Yeah. So for me, it's really about giving people options to pick and choose. I think it's great. I, I love your, your take on, you know, why write a book, you know, and, and I know with my own book, I, I had that sort of, is there not enough books in the world, you know, and, and it's almost as you were saying, it's like, it's, it's not necessarily new, but what is completely unique is your take on it and your, 
um, the way you've pulled it together, that makes it beautifully unique. And then people that resonate with you can then resonate through your book, which I think it's a beautiful thing, you know, and a lot of people sort of say, why would you ever write a book? You know, and I think that's, that's a lovely way to break it down. Yeah, you know, also maybe just to to piggyback on that, I, I also have come to understand that part of human evolution means that we keep retelling the same stories, mm. right? So, so in many ways, I think this will always, you know, if we don't exterminate ourselves, which I'm mightily concerned about right now, but let's just say this continues, yes. humankind, I think this will be our path forever, right? Is to take essentially the same processes and ideas because they work um, and then retell them in a language and in a way that resonates with, with the times and with the people and the context that they're in at that moment in time. So I've, I've now become much more friendly with this idea of writing books because I think, well, you know, if you have an audience that is ready for your voice and your particular way of expressing an idea that has been around for 3000 years, then that's a value in and of itself. Mm. I mean, are you, are you aware of um, a conscious change in, in, in what's your perception? I mean, are, <laughs> maybe it, I don't know if I want to go down this rabbit hole, but I mean, are, are we destined to just destroy ourselves or are we actually learning as a, as a, as a race, do you think? Because <laughs> I, I, I struggle to learn because everyone I, generally most people I speak to are positive. They're very deep thinking. They're all that. But then I've got to realize that that's, that's maybe not a fair representation either. So I'm just wondering what your take is or how are we getting on uh, as a place? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, um, I would say the jury is still out. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it, so in my line of work, I see positive signs, right? So when I, for example, got into coaching 20 years ago in Germany, where it was a, a completely novel concept um, in most organizations, coaching, or coaches were employed to penalize employees who didn't perform properly. Yeah. So it was by being sent to the psychiatrist version of the corporates. And that has completely shifted, right? So the understanding, uh, at least on a, on a superficial level, that there is something about supporting people in the inner work process and not creating value um, has shifted a lot uh, over the last 20 years, as far as I can see that in, in my own client interactions, I still think it's slightly too deeply rooted in, you know, and this hope that we will make people more productive, right? So if you get your stuff cleaned up um, and you do some inner work, then you will be a better employee. So I often think that the intention or the, uh, the initial uh, impulse to send somebody to coaching or to open coaching to people and organizations. I still find that a bit of a doubtful agenda, but at least, you know, it's, it, it, it's still the right thing for possibly not quite the right reasons. So that's on the one hand. So there is, there's a movement towards opening up. There's a movement towards people communicating on a, on a deeper level. There's a movement towards acknowledging that inner work seems to make a positive difference. There's a movement towards, acknowledging that um, mental health is a thing and it, it's debilitating if it's not there. Uh, so, you know, that's the positive side where I do think there is a shift in consciousness in a way. However, right, and that's, and that's the, the big question mark that I have, I, I still think that as a society, we're mainly 
largely hypnotized and addicted, um, hypnotized by and addicted to money. And um, the unconscious uh, reasons behind that uh, create a dynamic that has driven this planet to the, the brink of collapse. And I honestly don't know if we can reach enough people in the short amount of time that we have left to avoid a yeah, catastrophe. Well, actually, I think we, we can't avoid catastrophe. The question is, can we avoid extinction at, at some point down the line? Mm. And I don't, I don't know that. Mm. That's very, it's a deep question. Mm. Take me back a bit to, to you, you talked about you doing the illustrations for, for the book. What, what way have you illustrated and, and what was your intention there? The intention was that I often feel, you know, you know, this old adage of a picture says more than a thousand words. And I think there's some truth to that, right? I think we can um, capture the essence of an idea in a picture in a much more direct way than we can in words. Uh, so that was one reason that I thought, I, I think I have ways to illustrate something that just drives the point home much more quickly. Um, and, and the other reason was that I, don't like reading books myself that are just in, 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 in German, we would say they're um, a, a letter desert. So, you know, where there's just words and words and words and words, as far as the eye can see, like you, you drown in this endless flow of, of words. And I find it just a lot more entertaining when it's interspersed by, by drawings. And since I was, uh, lucky enough to have enough talent to do that myself. Um, I could also afford 85 drawings because I don't think I would have been able to do that if I had to pay anybody else for it. So i I did. Beautiful. That's great. I mean, uh, and out of interest, I mean, where, where is your flow state? Where, where are you most at service then? They're probably different access points. Um, you know, just recently I had to think of this, uh, you know, Buddhist approach of you can do anything with deep intention and deep concentration, which essentially brings you into a state of flow, even washing the dishes if you want, right? And in my 20s, I thought that was a very strange idea. And I'm beginning to sort of see truth in that, right? So, I, I, I noticed that whenever I manage to get out of my uh, monkey mind into a space where I'm fully doing what I'm doing at the moment, that seems to create a moment of flow. Mm. And that being said, that you know, there, there are obviously things that I enjoy more than washing the dishes. Um, I love talking to people. I, um, you know, the, 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 I feel it service the most when I, do what I, what I said at the very beginning of this conversation, when I, when I notice this moment in, in the conversation, when somebody begins to be truly okay with who they are and not ashamed uh, to show that to themselves and to me, and suddenly even get this childlike joy out of sharing parts of themselves that previously they, they really honestly thought if I don't hide that, if, if, you know, if somebody sees that I'm going to lose everybody in my life and when they discover that that's not the case or the people that they might lose might also be the right people to lose um which is also one potential insight that to me is joyous right and then i really feel like I've, i'm doing what i came here to do 
Mm. How common or uncommon do you think that is, that people turn up as a version of themselves, not the, the truest version, and maybe not being outwardly or inwardly honest? I think it's very common. I um, You know, it, it, it again goes back to uh, childhood, to being socialized, to becoming a valuable member of society. Um, you know, I, I do think that we've all been made to believe that to be okay, we need to be different from how we are. Well, and, and maybe all is, is hopefully not correct, but I would say it's the truth for a majority of people on the planet. Yeah. So I, I, I still think that's um, the bigger truth out there. There might be some lucky individuals for whom that was very different. Um, yeah. And I, and I think it creates this deep insecurity in ourselves, this deep desire to, um, to be who we believe other people want us to be. And then it's nearly like uh, creating a map um, and we create this map when we are when we are very little, right? So by the time we are five, we've usually created a map that uh, cements the beliefs about who we think we need to be, so that other people can actually agree to us. And then we forget to update the map. And so a big part of my work with my clients today is is help them update the map um, because they're operating on assumptions that might have been true when they were five, but now they're 45 and they may not be true at all anymore. And they just haven't noticed because they didn't, they didn't check. Right. And, and actually a client of mine told me this lovely story a few years ago. He said, Oh, when I, you know, when I shared that with him and I said, it's time for you to, to really look at, is that still true? Right. Can you really not be that person that you think you are? And then he said his sister read an article in some nature magazine about researchers who found out something interesting about bats. So apparently they were researching a colony of bats. Um, I don't remember what the actual purpose was, but one of the observations they made was when the bats left their cave, they flew onto this open field. And in the field, there was a giant tree. So all the bats parted and flew around the tree. And then for some reason, the tree got uh, taken down. So there was no tree anymore, but the researchers researching the bats noticed the bats would come and fly around the tree, right? And, and they were like, oh my God, we had no idea. We thought that bats would map in real time, but apparently even bats build maps. So then they wanted to test this assumption that bats build maps and had uh, this idea where there was one specific tunnel that would take the bats from the cave to the to the field and they built um, a net into the tunnel with some exit holes, right? So in the first time around, then the bats got apparently entangled in the net, but realized very quickly, there's some exit holes that take us out of this, uh, out of this mess, out of the net. And then every bat decided on their exit hole. So they all had specific holes that they would fly out every night. And whenever they would uh, see the, or, you know, know that the hole was there, they would pull in their wings, shoot through the hole and then out of the tunnel. And then they took the net out. And what the bats still did was every bat used the same exit hole, right? And the moment they hit the hole, which wasn't really there anymore because the net was gone. They would pull in their wings and fly out of that hole. And then he said, so we are like the bats, right? So we still pull in our wings at certain times because we think that there is an obstacle and we think that's the way we need to be to get through this exit. When 
actually that may, may not even be true anymore. And I, I thought that was just an amazing story and <laughs> very true. It is so true, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're just, we're stuck in those patterns that, you know, that I got caught once or that happened before and, yeah. and thereafter. And you, you must see that all the time, right? Absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, and somebody laughed at us or we were reprimanded or whatever might have happened. And of course, you know, when we were five, those were sort of near extinction events for our soul, right? So we rightfully created uh, assumptions based on those experiences and then adapted our behavior accordingly. So that was a very smart uh, move at the time. But much of that isn't true anymore. And also what I what I find is usually untrue is we fear if we have a similar experience again, if we get rejected again, if we get laughed at again, if we fail, we will not survive this. And that's not true for most situations. Right. So to to really reevaluate those old assumptions, that old, those old beliefs is, I, I think, one of the essential parts of change. So right to update our map. For you, I mean, because it's very much into the workplace, very much it, it, well, what comes across is very much business oriented. Was that intentional for you to to look at professional people and, and to work on that side? Or is it really do you see it differently? Do you just see that it happens to be in the workplace, but actually you're still dealing with the personal beliefs, the personal side of it? Yeah, very much. You know, it, it's labeled business coaching or executive coaching, but honestly, at the end of the day, I'm dealing with people, right? And if you come to work after having had a fight with your loved one or, you know, one of your children is is gravely ill, like that will affect you. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't care how self-controlled you are. So therefore I always tell my clients that if they work with me, they have to be willing to really look at all the nooks and crannies of their personal life, their past. And, you know, you'd be surprised like how many high functioning, uh, high earning clients I have seen who've, who've actually had to come to terms with serious trauma in their lives. So by now I would say that about 70% of my work is actually trauma work. And I'd never ex expected that, right? Because I thought, you know, he's a well-adjusted man and he makes, uh, you know, 2 million a year and like, how bad can it be? But I, I've seen that uh, the response to having experienced trauma can, can often either be to go completely into dysfunction and not be able to get your life together, or it can be the opposite and you go into hyperfunction. And, you know, from the outside, then you look very well put together, but on the inside, you're actually crumbling. Oh, it's, it is fascinating. And do you tend to, well, well to, there's going to be two parts to this question. Do you tend to find people with similar traumas work in similar work together? Does that make sense? Hmm. It's a, that's, that's an interesting question. I've never thought about that. Um, no, not necessarily. So it's not the the same kind of trauma, but I think it's more what are the coping strategies that people have developed to deal with the trauma they've experienced, okay. right? And, and there might be some sort of unconscious kinship in that because you recognize um, you recognize each other on some level and then, you know, the hyperperformance, um, working crazy hours, you know, that might be the, the code uh, by which you know each other. So it's more the coping mechanism, I would say. Mm. And I was going to say in a, in a professional environment or a business environment, 
do you tend to get a collective consciousness? So, you know, of those that are physically there, maybe more, um, you know, is that something you deal with or is it always down to this? It needs to come from the individual up. So that, and, and actually, hang on, let me go back to your previous question, because now I'm thinking maybe you are right about something. Maybe there is something about similar types of trauma, because I'm just thinking when I, when I think of the clients that I have, right, which, which tend to be sort of in the high performing um, bracket, if you want, uh, a lot of their trauma is connected with, for example, harsh criticism by important care people, right? By um, their parents usually, but it could have also been somebody else. Um, there's sort of a, a specific type of emotional neglect that might be connected to um, their experience in the past. So there is a pattern of sort of the insecure overachiever, as it's often called, where the need to prove yourself is so strong and then it gets transferred over time from the need to be accepted and recognized by your parents to the need to be recognized and accepted by your boss or by your organization, who you know, whoever you might project that is. And so, um, yeah, so there, there is probably a pattern around, I think if we pull out the rug from underneath children for long enough and make them believe you're not good enough, um, then that creates actually a very willing workforce that is quite open to exploitation in a way, also in a in a in a time dimension, because they um yeah, they just are willing to give just about anything. Yeah. And the the other question you had around collective consciousness, I do think that we create a field together as 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 people, right? And that's what we then experience as culture in an organization, for example. There's just a specific way of what is accepted uh, behavior and what are accepted mindsets um, in, in, in this collective. Um, and to change it, I always think there are different uh, access points, but one of the most powerful remains the individual, because I really do think that if we want to change culture on, on any significant level, we probably cannot not do inner work and that inner work has to be done by individuals in an organization. It's fascinating, isn't it? You know, how uh, oh, it's a fascinating how some, I don't know, cause um, I mean, as, as I said previously, my background is, you know, building engineer and some buildings and some structures can almost have present a form of culture and then you get the people inside them. So it's almost weird and saying, can you design in culture? Is it, is it a collective consciousness? Is it an individual spokesperson who then, who then sets up a ripple, which passes through? It's just, I'm just interested to see, you know, where the, the conscious and the cultural heartbeat of a company lies in your opinion. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I think many different things play play into that, right? So I think there is, on the one hand, culture really is a collection of uh, individual mindsets and and patterns of behavior. Um, culture can la heavily be influenced by architecture and the way that we design spaces in which people co-inhabit. Um, you know, I've, I've seen huge shifts in organization that that change the architectural layout because it just suddenly portrayed um, such a different message about 
how we view you as a human being in this space. And if, you know, and, and there've been enough studies to show that if you increase um, plants in any given space, whether that is, you know, a street and the number of trees you have on a street or the number of plants in an office building, how that affects people, right? So I, I, I think, yeah, culture is something that is a combination of all of these different factors. But, but at the very core, I think the culture of, a collective very much has to do with what I would call the, the source of this collective. So who is the founding uh, father or mother or, you know, who is they who envisioned, envisioned this, this, this thing into existence and the values that they imbued into the system are very much the values then that are expressed in what we then describe as culture. Mm. Well, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? Where it actually lies. Yeah. Mm. What um, what are you great at and what are you terrible at? Mm. So my wife would say I'm a great cook. <laughs> and uh, That's a question I'm going to come back to you on because I'm, I'm curious to know, is it the cooking or is it the eating? Or is it the, is it the present? Oh, both. I, you know, I love both, really. I think uh, life without food is not worth living. <laughs> but um, no, I, I do love to cook. And, and honestly, during COVID, I think I've, stepped up my game significantly because we just couldn't go out and now going out for meals has become this slightly frustrating experience because unless we spend a lot of money mm. most of the food i make is just frankly better so um yeah so so i'm good at cooking um i do think i'm good at uh, helping people to yeah to to like themselves and um, to find kindness in, in their heart towards who they are, their own path and, and their shortcomings. Um, I'm, I'm not so good at creating balance in my own life. That's something that, you know, that may sound sort of first superficial when you hear it, but it's actually something that I've been struggling with for as long as I can think. Like I have this tendency to completely overload my own agenda and i think it's you know at the very deepest core born out of my own story of not enoughness and and you know and feeling that i have to be there for everybody and may maybe even at least that's what my wife says a slight savior syndrome right <laughs> i think well if i can't be there for everybody then i failed and also i can obviously help everybody which is uh, also obviously not true um yeah, so there's something about dropping into a space that is more hedonistic, I should say. So there's the, the slowing down part is something that I really grapple with to this day. I think I've gotten much better, but I'm I'm not good with that. And then the outcome, of course, for others is that I create this vortex, right? Of it's very hard to relax around a person who can't relax. So, um, you know, I think this, this culture of, you know, because again, I, I also create a field of, of culture in a way. Um, and I can tell people all day long about how important it is to take time for yourself and to be kind to yourself. And, you know, and if I don't do it, it doesn't really mean anything. Right. So, yeah. So I would say that's one of the areas I'm not good um let's see what else my my wife sometimes thinks i'm i'm vain 
and and uh, you know the wanting to be liked uh, aspect in the world of of uh, the amount of recognition that I uh, that that I thrive on, and and I think that's true, and I think it's also again related to 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 story, right? So I I found that there are two types of people in the world. Like I've always constructed my world from the outside in. So in a way, my sense of self and who I believe I, I am has always come from piecing together feedback that I received from other people. So I've always seen myself through somebody else's eyes. Whereas, for example, my wife creates her world from the inside out. She really doesn't care so much what other people think of her. I mean, with with a few exceptions of you know people that she really, really deeply cares and values. But largely, the feedback of others isn't so important for her. She has a very strong idea, a very clear idea of who she is and what her values are. So there's always a bit, I always uh, think she's a bit like Superman in sort of the integrity of her values, right? For her, there is a black and a white. Whereas for me, with the puzzling together, even my own sense of self, there's always so many perspectives that I can find truth in just about any perspective when I listen to it long enough. So maybe one of the things I feel I'm not so good at is having a really deeply grounded position on something. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it's always, it's, I mean, it's always interesting as well as, you know, our self-perception, you know, of, of you know, how self-perceptive we are and, and, but yeah, it's, um, and that's okay. Cause I mean, well, that's part of it, right? So we're, we're not all sort of built to do everything and, and it's okay to, to know that or to accept that, you know, cause sometimes we do get hung up and say, um, I should be everything, but you know, I'd imagine that's quite common in, in workplaces that everyone they should be everything and everyone else should be like them. <laughs> you know, yeah. to realize that actually, no, thankfully we're all different people, right? Yeah. No, it's it's uh, for you when you're actually speaking to people, do you do you are you able to almost sort of read the character? quite quickly underneath or maybe is it maybe that's not the intention when you know when we're actually working with people are you listening are you looking at their patterns their languages uh, what are you actually looking for when you're speaking to people or working with people mm. the, the best way i know how to describe that is that a I, I look for their essence and i don't quite know how to describe that because it's less about you know psychological patterns or um you know, I remember when I first studied psychology and I told people, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting my master's in psychology. I will always take sort of the step back and like, are you reading me now? I'm like, no, I can't actually do that. You know, this, this is not how it works. But I, but I think what I can do is I have this, and that's, you know, obviously built on years of experience. It's like after thousands of hours of talking to people, you must have the, you know, the, the, the same skill by now where you just sort of get a sense for what a person is all about. And so that essence often also has to do with, for, for me, with figuring out what are some of their core needs that in their life were maybe not fully met at a point when it was important to them. Mm. And so in conversations, I, you know, so for example, I just, uh, before we had our conversation today, I had a mediation call between a CEO of, of an organization and one of his direct reports. And, and in this mediation, I then rephrased what I heard each of them had actually needed from the other in, in the situation that went south. 
And then they were both like, yeah, no, exactly that. How did you know that? Right. And, and I thought, well, I know that because I've had so many conversations and, and ultimately yeah. as human beings, we're maybe not as complicated as we, we think we are. <laughs> so there, there are, there are patterns, but I don't actively look for patterns. It's just more an intuitive process by now. Hmm. Yeah. It's, I mean, but that makes sense, right? That's experience. That's, that's the joy of intuition, experience, knowledge. Yeah. You know, a few years back, I, I read this, uh, the, the, the book Blink, which, you know, also has been a, a bestseller. And he talks about um, how people who are experts in something always say, well, that's just sort of a, a, a gut feeling. Like I make a decision based on a gut feeling. And of course it is on a level, but that gut feeling is, you know, whatever, 20,000 hours of experience, right? And then your brain gets so fast at picking up the right pieces of information that it then boils down to you feeling that was just an immediate reaction I had to it. Hmm. But it's based on this, you know, on this mountain of experience. <laughs> It's a bit like when people say, you know, you're lucky or they, they refer to sports people or whoever is yeah. lucky, you know, it's like, well, yeah, 10, hours, 20,000 hours. Yeah. I'm lucky. Cause <laughs> you know, that's, that's what I've been getting ready for. Right. It's for you when you actually work with people, do you have a clear intention on and where you wanted to go or do you try and stay open and just sort of read what's trying to be achieved, if that makes sense? Does it always generally come to the same place? Uh, you know, ultimately you come to the same place or do you try and just read the situation and, and just be present? So the, the being present piece, I, I do think is huge because I, I you know, keep noticing how, uh, how deep the experience is of somebody listening to you on a, on a different level and really listening to you, right? So when I say that, I always uh, try to find a level below the story. And that's a bit what your introduction to me was about uh, the interviews that you lead, right? Where you say in the beginning, we're sort of in the conscious uh, place. And then over the course of an hour and a half or longer, we, we, we land in a more unconscious place. So I, I would say what has shifted in the way I work with clients today is I try to as quickly as possible, try to find the place they are trying to hide from themselves. And, and, you know, therefore also from me, but it doesn't have so much to do with me. So the question is, what are you in your darkest moments thinking about yourself? And what would you hate to be true about yourself? And then to to pull that out. And I, I always explain it in a way where I say over the course of our lives, we have collected these Jack in the boxes and a Jack in the box is basically a fear that you have collected somewhere along the way. And you're mortally afraid. If you open that box, that monster is going to pop out and then, you know, it will destroy you. It will make your life miserable. You know, it will be the most horrible experience ever. And for example, the, you know, the box might be that you, um, that a part of you thinks I'm actually quite a manipulative person, but I hate manipul manipulative people, right? Because that's like, you shouldn't be like that. So one of your Jack in the boxes is I'm manipulative or that fear that I might be because somebody has called me that in the past. And what I do is I, I help them to detect their Jack in the boxes. And then we open the box and 
we have that experience together and, and that's where I hold my clients in the moment of realizing when I open this box, I actually have a lot more life energy available for other things than keeping that thing locked the whole time. And since we have more than one box, traditionally, you know, we, we suddenly have 80% of our energy invested in keeping all of these boxes closed because we've got an elbow here and a finger there and an ear there and, you know, and a knee there and a foot there and trying to, to keep all of these horrible boxes closed so that nobody finds out who we really are. Um, and then suddenly you open the box and you go, okay, not, nobody explodes when I say I am manipulative. And that's true because I'm a human being. Yeah? Every human being manipulates life and people and other, you know, themselves. It's, it's, it's normal. And, and there might even be something wonderful and joyful about that. So suddenly this jack in the box isn't this scary monster anymore. And I've got 5% of my life energy back to do something more creative with. Right. So, so that's what I'm now looking for is the place they're trying not to see and then to go there as, as, as fast as we can in their particular process, because that's where um, quality of life is hidden. It's not, is it in the depth of knowing yourself or the depth of knowing others that, you know, really where we get to go somewhere special? Yeah, I, I would say so. I think that's where, uh, joy and acceptance and connection, all of those things are to be had when we, when we essentially get naked, right? When we allow ourselves to see ourselves clearly, warts and all, and when we then have the courage to also let another person see ourselves, warts and all, that can be a nearly spiritual experience of communion. So I, yeah, I do think it's, um, those are the most rewarding places we can go to, but they're also hard, right? Because we, we are afraid. We learned that we might not survive it. We get punished for it in the past, whatever, whatever it might be. So I, I'm always fascinated at the level of disconnect, um, that we have in this world where, where people are not connected to self-awareness and not connected to their emotions. And then they lash out and, and, you know, do crazy things and follow crazy people who make them promises that are lies and uh, very clearly. So just because they um, represent something that we have a longing for, which is, you know, certain kind of leadership, somebody who will point us the way everything to just not do the work ourselves. And I think we need to do the work ourselves. Yeah, but we're always, <laughs> I say we, I mean, it, it, there's always that sort of desire to try and bypass or to take the shortcut or can I not just take a pill and... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I get it. It's not that I haven't been at that point myself, but um, it, actually, what is your experience with inner work? Is that something that has a space in your life that you've experienced with? Yeah, I think until... <laughs> Everything outside of yourself is just, it's just, you know, the outer game is, it's just, it's noise. And until you can, there's one, there's one question and, you know, for me, it's, it's a real decision tree moment and it's either yes or no. Um, and I mentioned that not all the, the, the interviews go live and there's one question more than ever has sort of seems to have really, um, been the litmus test for people. And that's quite simply is, do you like yourself and do you love yourself? Hmm. 
And by a huge margin, it's those, the interviews of people who are very uh, connected and are going and all the rest. The answer is, well, yes, of course, you know, and it is there. Um, and those that either can't answer the question or it's, 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 it's very uncertain are quite often those that the interviews that don't go live. Not that I, I don't use it as a, you know, that's not a yes, no for me. It's just, it, it's amazing how the congruency with self yeah. represents, you know, the fact of, I like myself, like I'm not yeah. perfect, but I'm still, I'll give myself, I'm tolerant of myself and, and all the rest. And I love myself no matter what happens, as opposed to those going, hmm, yeah, I don't, I don't see that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, a perfect sense. Yeah, you send them my way. They're great clients. For me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, absolutely. And I think it's a, you know, it comes along as such an inconspicuous question, but then if you really allow that to settle in you, it's, it's quite essential. Right. And it brings you to some of the more core beliefs and you, and, and again, I think that's one entry point question into the Jack in the box conversation. Mm. Right. Because that will bring that out. If people realize they cannot say yes to that question in a, in a congruent way, it's usually because too much of their energy is invested in, into keeping too many boxes closed, too many things they're afraid of, of letting out. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the lucky observation for me is that can be changed, but people who have essentially fallen out of love with themselves along their path at some point, um, you know, we, we create problems for the world if we do that, because then what happens is we we are looking for gratification in all the wrong places. And that's where, you know, the, 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 the previous comment that I made about I, I think we as a society are hypnotized by and addicted um, to money. Um, money becomes one of those replacements for an actual connection to self. And if that happens, it's it's dangerous. Mm. Yeah, it's, I mean, the the physical effort required to carry all those permutations, those different roles that we play, those sort of expectation, the people pleasing, the the everything. It's just, and I can say, I know for myself, that's, you know, that's where I got to a point in my life of just exhaustion from trying to carry so many things. And then you think you're going mad, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And it leads you to, potentially a point of, of breakdown, which I, I assume you had your, your version of, right. Mm. And then to really reevaluate, well, who am I and what, what do I want and what is my, what is my gift to the world? Do we have to break down to break through? No. Um, however, I do think that there is often a deeper crisis of meaning connected to relevant breakthroughs right but but for example there there was this whole school of development that was sort of founded in the 70s by uh, mainly american uh, psychologists and therapists that that came from this assumption at first we really need to make you break down like if you weren't wailing on the floor like a baby we didn't do our job right right and only from that place can we build you back up and sort of give you a new and more stable self-esteem so i don't believe in in that kind of violent process anymore i don't think it needs to 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 quite go to those places but you know but it can like I, i've had incredibly deep experiences with clients who ended up wailing on the floor like a baby because that was part of where they needed to go 
I do think there's more subtle versions of that. And, 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 you know, and frankly, I think you never know when the penny drops for you. And, and, and it's probably also not just one penny dropping in, in sort of your understanding of yourself and the world. It's, it's a succession off. And it often feels like one step forward, two steps back, sort of you have an awareness and it feels so clear. Right. And then suddenly you, you, you feel yourself sliding back into your old pleasing patterns, into your old insecurities, into your old thinking around what type of success you need to produce to be a worthwhile member of your family, of society, a, a good partner, you know, and then you have another insight and, and you move a step ahead. But it, it's this constant process of maybe mini breakdowns that we experience so a little bit of breakdown is, is probably involved, but I don't think it has to be dramatic for everybody. Mm. <laughs> well, that's, I suppose from, that's the benefit of having a, you know, a mentor or a coach that actually can, can guide you through the process without the, <laughs> yeah. maybe with the wailing on the floor, maybe not. Right. But it, yeah, they really help but, sort of fast track that. Exactly. I think you can fast track it. And, you know, one of the more joyful conversations, for example, that I had uh, in, in the last year was um, a CEO of a company in, in, in Germany contacted me and he had read some article that I'd published online and he bought my book. Then he came to a free workshop that I offered and then he, he called and he said, listen, I would like to do uh, the CUI program that we've designed at Conscious You for inner work for my entire organization. Right. I want everybody to go through this program. And I said, why? And he was like, well, because inner work in my life has been such a gift and such a pleasure. And I have derived so much um, quality of life out of knowing myself better that I would simply like to give my employees an entry ticket into that world. And if they take it or, or don't, that's up to them. I'm not going to force anybody into the program, but I, you know, I think we could offer it to them. And, and I was just so delighted to, you know, to have somebody with that breadth of, of vision without having this clear agenda of, well, I want to make them more efficient at their work, right? And, and, and break down silos so that they can perform better. I, I actually do think that's an outcome of inner work in organizations, but for him, that wasn't the objective at all. So I, I believe there are more and more people now, luckily, who, because of the benefits they've received from inner work, are now opening doors for others to have this experience without having necessarily had a, a burnout before they get a coach or go to therapy or whatever their process might be. Is, I mean, that, that's, that shows real mature wisdom. Mm. You know, to, as you say, to be willing to say, listen, it's, it's good for the employees. It's good for others. If there's an upside, great, but that's not the intention. Yeah. I, I was like, can I clone you or marry you or something? <laughs> you know, you're great. So I'd, I'd love to have more clients like that who have this vision um, of also just wanting people to be well, right. And to, um, to create, you know, we, we talked about culture earlier. I can clearly see that he wants to create a culture and has succeeded to a large degree already where people come as their true self and they don't sort of have to check who they are at the door every time they enter the office. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but is it an age thing or what point do you think people actually sort of just... <laughs> they have to let go or, or 
you know, I suppose I can only, uh, if I speak for myself, I got to the stage where my life was so busy and having the effort and energy to maintain all the different roles and all the different, you know, personas that we, we dress that actually you just I can't handle it anymore. Do you think, is that age, is it knowledge, is it experience, is it, what do you think it is that we suddenly flip the switch and saying, I'm no longer willing to carry that? I, you know, I, I would say it's age and maybe our generation, the one above us. Um, and I'm very delighted to see that there is a generational jump in consciousness that I can very clearly see. So, so the sort of con connection to self, the, um, the rejection of, uh, for example, uh, the patterns and demands of patriarchy, um, the rejection of, uh, all definitions of success, the rejection of that more is always better in the generation of people who are now in their twenties to thirties, I, I find uh, staggering or, you know, here in Europe, of course, we've had um, the Fridays for future movement and the extinction rebellion. And when you look at, at young people there who are in their teens still, right? And, and the amount of, of wisdom and connection that they have to themselves, to nature, to an awareness that everything is connected. When I see them, that really gives me hope. I think, well, then we might not be completely screwed as a species. <laughs> so no, I, I think age, I, I would have maybe said that 10 years ago. And today I think it can help, but I also have seen people who just get more set in their ways the, the older they get and, and, and are less agile in their thinking and less open to new ideas. So it can go either way. Mm -hmm. are, you, are you clear on your purpose, by the way? Yeah. Your <laughs> calling for life as such? Yeah. And, you know, and again, it's, it's connected to what we talked about earlier with the fire in the belly and, and my whole family history. So what my purpose is, is to, I call it creating conscious tribes. That's sort of the best description that I, that I've come up with. And that for me basically means to create or help collectives turn into sort of a thriving collective where people do inner work, right? So that's all the stuff that we've already talked about. Know yourself, uh, you know, have self-compassion, take ownership for your life, uh, really lead deep dialogues with other people. So where, where that can be present, um, where they also are connected to a bigger picture, right? To, to realize that they're not an isolated event in the world. I, I think we need to as collectives realize that whatever choice we make in this collective will have a ripple effect in the world. You know, we're, we're not alone here. Like this is something that that actually makes a difference. Um, so our choices matter. Um, I, I, you know, I do think that we need collectives that uh, lead deep relationships, right? So that nurture loving connections amongst the people who are part of this collective. And then finally, who somehow invest in what I would call conscious rituals. So um, who have the realization that if we want to do anything new, we might need a period of doing that more deliberately because we do have a habit of sliding back into old habits, right? And that's normal for individuals. That's normal for collectors. And, and, and these conscious tribes, I think if you have 
collectors of people who do inner work, who, who you know, see the bigger picture, who, who connect deeply to themselves and others and who practice conscious rituals, then what you essentially have are collectives that are strong enough to not slide into uh, creating Holocaust and, and, and hurting people and torturing each other. And, you know, so those kind of atrocities that cost me 20 years in my life to, to get come to terms with and, and do trauma work on, on the deepest level, because the generations before me didn't, didn't do that. That's what I feel I want to, to give back to the world. It's like preventive measures, right? So that, that we don't, we don't have to be that worst version of ourselves. Mm. Yeah, it's always the way, isn't it? How do you how do you unveil the best version of yourself or or just yeah show up as yeah? Yeah. And you know, the best version of ourselves also means to acknowledge um, you know, the darker or more violent uh, sides that we all have, because I do think that is part of humanity. So I think the, you know, the path to a more peaceful um society and to more peaceful collectives actually has to include to integrate that which we are rejecting about ourselves right it is about integrating our capacity for violence it's integrating our jealousy it's integrating our greed um, it's integrating our manipulation it's integrating all of these shadow sides because if we don't do that and just insist that we are the good people our dark sides come out in, in the most unsuspected moments and, and usually at a strength where, where they create a lot of damage in, in the field around us. And, and I think that that's partly also where, for example, the coaching world is falling a bit short these days because we're so focused on bringing out people's best version of themselves that we forget the other version of themselves. Right. And, and, and sort of pretend that isn't there, but it is there. And we, we need to look at that version. Yeah. It's, it's, it is fascinating, isn't it? To, 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 to deny the darker side of ourselves actually almost makes it worse in many ways, yeah. you know, and, and, and doing that because we spent a lifetime running away from it as well, which. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, there we are back at the Jack in the box conversation, right. Where I say, those are all the Jack in the boxes. And we need to drag them into the sunlight and we need to have a big unboxing party, right? And if we can do that in communion with others, it can be an exhilarating experience to stand there naked and have others see you in your underwear with all of your shadows and they still stay by your side, right? And to have that experience that you can actually be fully human and people will not run from you. I think that's one of the biggest gifts that we can give to each other. I'm I'm currently rereading The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, Tolle and um, the end of one of his chapters there is it's just a beautiful little word, you know, and they talk about, you know, to, to, to be free, you need to die before you die. And and the context being is is letting go of just letting everything go and just being being you, you know, yeah. I think is is beautiful, right? You know, it's that it's that aspect of yeah. Yeah, letting go of that shell, right? Of that image that you have built years to perfect. And um yeah, and then just to to be butt naked. So <laughs> way to do it. Where what's who does the conscious you serve best and what's 
who do you find or who do you think is the the, the person that you can really serve? Mm. So we, we have a bit of sort of two legs that we stand on with, with Conscious U, right? So on the one hand, we offer these scalable programs to organizations. And, and, and that idea is really based on the experience that I've had for, you know, the better part of 15 years as an executive coach and top team coach of realizing it's amazing when we can get people in a room and have this, you know, really intense processes and we're together for three days and there's laughter and there's tears and there's recognition and there's self-awareness and it's all fantastic. However, there's a big problem with that because that type of work is very expensive, right? So firstly, you have to take all of these people out of the organization, out of their normal workflow. You have to ship them to some amazing location. You have to pay for their flights, pay for accommodation. And then you have a team of coaches and you know anywhere between one and five people on site. So because of the price tag associated with that, it doesn't ever really get scaled across the entire organizations. Mm-hmm. So you, you have, it gets stuck with sort of the first two levels of leadership. And what I've come to to believe is that if we really want to shift a corporate culture, an organizational culture, we we do need inner work, but we need it for everybody, not just a chosen few. And also we need to give it a bit more breathing space, a bit more time, because as you, I'm I'm sure, can confirm in your own process, like a three-day workshop is not going to make you an entirely new person. You might have great insight, yeah, but if you don't have a way to to create that as a practice in your life, three days are going to fade away very quickly. Mm-hmm. So the, the programs that we offer organizations are, are basically there to embed inner work over at least three months, if not longer. You do it in communion with your coworkers. So um, that, you know, there's constant dialogue, constant connection. And over this time of three months, we notice that people begin to really share who they are and that shifts corporate culture. And our ideal client in that realm is basically like the CEO that I told you about, right? So I I love to work with inspired sources who have created an organization or a system and then have come to the understanding um, that we are on our path, but we could deepen this experience for everybody. And and also who have been, you know, they have to be open to, in a way, this democratizes access to deep learning and high quality learning because everybody from the CEO to five levels down will have the same experience. And, and that's a choice, right? As, as a CEO, that also means you're taking away some of the privileges that you would have previously granted your top, top leadership because you sent them off to these expensive retreats because suddenly they do the same work as everybody else. So perfect client there is like the CEO that I told you about and then we have some open programs and, and sort of our biggest program there is called CEO Money, where we take money as an entry point into deep inner personal work, into shadow work, essentially. And people who resonate best with CEO Money are people who've already done some personal development work because it's it really takes you very deep quite quickly. So if you've never had the experience of what it is like to share about yourself in a group and, and reflect about your own life path in that way, it might be a bit too challenging, right? So I would say in both cases, it's great if people are a little bit on, on the path already and if they see some value in looking inside and, and becoming a fuller version of, of being human. 
You know, so those are the the people that I love to work with. It's uh, yeah, it's 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 fascinating the, the potential there really, isn't it? You know, it's um you know what's what's possible. I'm gonna ask what what are you good at cooking out of interest? Well, by now I love to cook Indian food, for example, and that is born out of pure necessity because Berlin interestingly it has a horrible indian food scene <laughs> it's uh, it's probably one of the smallest groups of immigrants we have in the city so therefore it's very hard to get good indian food if you know if i lived in london or somewhere that would be a different story but here it's difficult so i learned to cook it um i do really love to cook vegetarian food uh, but i also make a, a great um goulash out of venison is, is yeah, yeah, yeah. The name. so it's not that i don't eat meat at all but i if i do eat it it's it's you know very conscious and and, and hopefully an animal that had uh, a good life and i feel if they grew up in the forest and just uh, ate herbs in the forest they probably had a pretty decent life <laughs> yeah well, absolutely absolutely so tell me what um if you were to try and describe your fire in the belly then in one or two words what would they be yeah, pick, picking up on the start of our conversation is something to do with yeah. with connection and love, right? So starting with self love because I, you know, and maybe that goes back to your question about is are your values always connected to your void? Um, I I do think they're connected to our story. So therefore, I would say, given how much I felt I struggled with my own self-acceptance with with uh coming to see and not just accept but love my own complexity that's now what my fire is right that's where i feel i'm most alive and that's what i want to give to other people as well mm, that's fabulous and tell me then where can people learn more about you where can they find out more or hunt you down stalk you any <laughs> just stalk me um well they can have a look at at, at our website of conscious you which is www.conscious-u.com and i don't know maybe you put that in the session description or they can find me on linkedin um i'm not doing really facebook or insta for ethical reasons um trying to you know that's one of these other themes that i'm just very fascinated by is how much control we've given uh, technology and, uh, and and monopolistic technology and, and 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 also how we've limited our choices in 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 that way and very interested in people who are designing alternative solutions to that and who are yeah somehow bringing new ideas of staying connected in this world uh, with more choice and more agency over our data. And, and those kind of topics are also dear to my heart, even though I'm a, you know, a bloody beginner there, so I wouldn't dare to be an expert by, by a far shot. But I do find it's great that those conversations are now more in the forefront as well. Mm. So, um, no, it's, yeah, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's an interesting world where in the time that we're living in, let's say, you know, is there a final message then you'd like to leave with our listeners? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's something if, if you feel that you answer to the question that you sometimes ask your guests about, you know, do you love yourself or do you, are you, you know, okay with who you are? If, if the answer is somehow not yes to 
you know, to not give up in shame and sort of, you know, push that away and, you know, sweep it under the carpet, but rather to go, oh, that's interesting. You know, I, I wonder why that is. Why, why can I not give a wholehearted yes to that question? Mm. And what might be possible in my life if I could? And then to not give up until you've found a way to get to a yes when it comes to that question. And there's so much help out there. There's so many amazing books out there. Um, you know, found your own little group, support group. Like don't, don't do these things alone. I, I do think that there's great power and healing to be found in communion. Um, and, and we can sometimes be invited into collectives like that, but we can also be brave enough to, to found collectives like that. Mm. So I, yeah, that would be my message. Like get to the point in your life where you can love yourself because it's, it's beautiful. And from that place, you'll be able to bring the most value to, to life. It's beautiful. So just to remind everyone, so your book is available on Amazon. So it's conscious you become the hero of your own story. And Ayeshta, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on. Thank you so much. And uh, until the next time. Pete, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon. And it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.